And to me, as I, I thought and meditated on it, there is just this all-encompassing reality there that God should be central to every aspect of our existence, that the, the foundation for our well-being is only found in God, and we are exclusively dependent upon Him. That His name is to be hallowed, that even though He rules and reigns far above us, He comes to us, and He cares for us, and He wants the best for us. Even the smallest of details in our lives are not outside the reach of God's loving care. All of that and so much more is in those few simple verses there that Jesus gave us and what we know as the Lord's Prayer. But we also covered many other things in chapter 11, but more importantly for today, we were taken to a a lunch that Jesus was invited into with some Pharisees and the scribes. And we saw a side of Jesus that most people probably in our culture, or some even in evangelicalism, they would like to either try to deny or try to uh, avoid completely or maybe soften it a little bit and, and talking about that it actually happened, that he said these things. And that's because the Pharisees, he confronted the, he, rather he confronted the Pharisees and the scribes with the truth about their dead-end religion. That what they thought was pleasing to God was actually a pious, false, and poisonous religion that was detrimental to men's souls. In fact, he, he boldly declared so much to the Pharisees in verse 44 that he compared them to concealed tombs that people would just kind of inadvertently walk over and get defiled by. And then in even more strong language, he told the scribes that they had taken away the key to knowledge in verse 52, and that they themselves hadn't entered it, and they were hindering anyone else from entering the kingdom of God. And so the reason that Jesus' rebuke here, and he rebuked them so bluntly and so hardly, is because they were the ones who were supposed to be the people of God. But instead, they were leading people straight into eternal damnation. Now, if you think about it, What is the greatest harm that anyone could ever do to anyone else? Is it murder? Is it some sort of sexual deviant sin? Is it betrayal? No. The greatest harm that anyone could ever do to anyone else is to lead a person away from God. Because what could possibly be worse than spending eternity away from the presence of God? to be put to death by the sword, to be sawn in two, or to be scourged and afflicted would be absolutely nothing compared to not gaining God for all of eternity. But that's what these Pharisees and scribes were doing to the people of Israel, and so it demanded a forceful response, a strong, bold rebuke. But think about this. If that is true, if the worst thing they could have done was to lead people away from God, why didn't Jesus just call down his holy angels from heaven and just wipe them out? Why didn't God just eliminate them from doing any more harm to anyone? Well, I think it it demonstrates for us two things about the character of God. First of all, it demonstrates God's great patience with sinners. But secondly, and similar to it, I would argue that it demonstrates God's great mercy. Because there would be a Pharisee that we know of that seemed to have a change of heart about Jesus Christ. 
And we know him by the name of Nicodemus. For those of you who've read through the book of John, you know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. And then he assisted Jesus in his trial in John chapter 7. And then finally, he comes along and he helps Joseph of Arimathea with the body of Jesus in John chapter 19. And he brings some 65 pounds of spices to embalm Jesus with. Now, we don't know for sure that Nicodemus became a Christian or not. But there, if there is one lost sheep to gain, then surely God's patience and God's mercy on these Pharisees was demonstrated for the sake of that one. But nonetheless, he strongly rebuked them by pronouncing a series of six woes on them. And as a result, we ended chapter 11 there with the Pharisees and the scribes becoming more and more hostile to Jesus to such an extent that it says in our text that the language there was one of hunting or lying in wait in order to try to catch him in something he would say. Because ultimately, they would rather silence their Savior and crucify their Messiah not too many months from now rather than to give up their false, dead-end religion. And so I have to ask you, especially in a time like this in our country, is all of your confidence and all of your hope in Jesus Christ alone? Or is it in some particular candidate should they get elected? Do you have the unwavering assurance that regardless of whoever is occupying the White House, that you have a king in heaven that will never be dethroned. Because in heaven, there's going to be no need for superdelegates, and there will be no brokered convention. Because we have a Savior who rules and reigns and is seated at His throne, and He laughs at the nations who shake their fist at Him, as Psalm 2 tells us. We can very easily allow our politics and our devotion and our zeal for one particular candidate or political cause become a substitute for our devotion and our zeal to Jesus Christ. And thus we become no different than a Pharisee. But this week, we're going to start into a discourse that will start in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. And it's going to run all the way up until Luke 13, verse 9. Because in Luke 12, 1, it says many thousands of people who gathered there. And then in verse 13, we'll see someone from the crowd ask him a question. Then in verse 41, Peter asks if he is addressing the disciples or is he addressing everyone else too. In verse 54, it says he was also saying to the crowds. And then finally, in chapter 13, verse 1, it says now on the same occasion until finally we get all the way up to Luke chapter, or verse 10 of Luke 13, And you're going to see where it changes from Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So this is a rather long discourse, and it has a couple of interruptions in it. One by a crowd goer, one by Peter. But it's punctuated by a couple things that we're going to notice as we go through this. We're going to see some things kind of rise to the surface for us. And that is comfort for the faithful and a warning for the disobedient. As we go through 12.1 to 13.9, that is going to be the prevalent thing that we start to see. Comfort for the faithful and warning for the disobedience. And so everything that we're going to cover over the next several weeks is going to be in the same setting and the same crowd. So I want to begin by reading our text together this morning, starting with verse 1 of Luke chapter 12, going to verse 7. We are not going to make it all the way there. I cannot do a... 
micro-sermon on the fear of God. So we are going to probably stop at verse 3 today. Uh, But I want to invite you to stand if you're there with me today uh, for the reading of God's Word. In Luke chapter 12, we'll read 1 through 7. God's holy inspired word says this. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever of you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and how it instructs us. And we just pray that we would find great encouragement for, for what you have for us today. Help our minds to be focused and our ears attentive to what you would have to say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by asking you a couple of questions. And these questions are really only ones that you and you alone can answer. And they relate directly to our text. Your spouse, your parents, your best friend are not going to be able to answer these questions because they deal directly with you and your heart. But I wonder, in your understanding of Jesus Christ and and what it means to follow Him, would you say that your fears center in Him? Would you say that your trust resides most in Jesus Christ or in someone or something else? When you wake up in the morning, do you wake up thinking about how you can go about your day and live for the glory of God or live for yourself? And who would you say that you fear most, God or people? Because, beloved, how we answer those questions and the thoughts that typically come into our mind when we first think of the answers is probably most likely who we truly are. It's very possible for you to just attend a public worship service and and sort of put on your game face and just show up without really having your heart and mind engaged in worshiping the living God. You can certainly go through your daily routine and have very infrequent, if any, thoughts about God and just depend on your own strength and your own resources to make it through the day. And you certainly could give little to no thought about being obedient to Christ or any confession or repentance or any expression of gratitude to God from one day to the next. But if that be the case, then you probably aren't in that much better state than that of a Pharisee. How sad it is that in our world today, we have more and more people coming out of the closet, so to speak, than we do Christians running back into their closets to go do business with God. 
And yet this warning that we have here from Jesus here in our text is very loud and it is very clear for anyone who would think for a moment that living a life of hypocrisy is going to bear any fruit in the end. And it's laid out very clearly for us in verse 1 where it says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, first of all, we see Jesus kind of emerge from this lunch that he had with the Pharisees and the scribes. And and when he comes outside, it says there are so many thousands of people gathered together that they are just stepping on one another. And, And the word used here for thousands is murios. And it's the Greek word, which means 10,000. And that is the highest number that there's a word for in the Greek language. There is no word in the Greek for a hundred thousand, say. And so when you see the angels that are before the throne of God in Revelation 5.11, it says that there are myriads upon myriads of angels running around singing His praise, right? And so that means 10,000 times 10,000. There's a lot of angels. But this is a plural form of this word myrios, and it means multiples of ten thousands. So this is just a massive, massive crowd around this one man, namely Jesus Christ. It would be upwards of maybe twenty to 30,000 or more. And it's not probably at all what you would have pictured and may have seen in a movie or something like that about crowds coming with the life of Jesus because they probably don't have enough extras and costumes for all of those parts. But this is just a massive, massive crowd. This was a big deal in Israel because... There wasn't, and think about this, there really wasn't a sound system for Jesus to be able to use. It says the people are just stepping on one another, trying to get closer and closer to what, hear what Jesus has to say. It was literally like a mob scene with all those people out there. And so you can imagine there's probably some sort of telephone game going on, you know, with people saying, well, what did he say? What did he say, right? But instead of addressing those crowds directly, he turns to his disciples first. Now remember that we know that there was at least a 12 that Jesus sent out at one time, and then he sent out another 70 disciples on another missionary journey. And so he's got a small crowd to address himself. And the bigger crowd will be here to hear what he has to say. But after he gets done pronouncing these woes of judgment on the Pharisees and the scribes, he turns his attention to the disciples to warn them about them. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, what he's saying to you, I'm warning you, don't get caught up in false external religion. Don't get caught up in some mere outward devotions to God. Protect yourselves. Watch yourselves. Be careful. Don't go astray in becoming a hypocrite in religion. Now, the leaven that he's talking about here is is a yeast that works its way through the dough, right? And makes bread to rise. You put a little bit in, and it works its way through the entire dough ball. But it It doesn't cause the dough to really increase in substance or weight, but it just kind of sort of inflates it with air. It has the appearance of a large mass of dough, but it's really kind of full of air. But the point is, is that it only takes a little bit to permeate it completely through the entire dough ball. And so when we apply that to the Pharisees, what he is saying to his disciples is, you don't even want to get close to these guys and become influenced by them. 
You don't want to have anything to do with them in terms of following after God because all they're really doing is play-acting. That's what the word hypocrisy means here. It means to to hide oneself behind a mask or to act like a, a performer on a stage. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples here is, is that although you may think that they are the most spiritual, the most holy, the most righteous of people in all of Israel, their hearts are far from God, and you want to stay away from them. Because ultimately, they are leading a double life. And so, do you put things on social media that reflect the same person as to who you are on the outside, or are you only trying to give an impression that you're really faithful to Christ? Do you turn the righteous and holy side of yourself on like a switch as soon as you walk through the doors of the church, but you truly don't have a heart from God when you leave? Do you, do you have a certain group of guys or a certain group of ladies that you act differently around depending upon who's watching? How easy is it for us to make ourselves appear more spiritual than what we really are? But then you have to ask yourselves, are you also letting the corrupting influence of the world's movies, the world's TV programs and music draw you away from Christ or draw you closer to Christ? Are you letting those things influence you towards godliness or towards wickedness? Do they help you think heavenly thoughts are they, and help you desire your Savior? Or are they dragging you down into depravity? Don't think that those things do not have effect on you, because they do. Beloved of God, this is dangerous to do. You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul issued a similar warning to, to what Jesus has said here when he said in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three, when he wrote, Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And when you keep company with the world's music by listening to it in your car, and you keep company with the world's movies by watching it in your home, don't think that it's morally neutral, because it's not. There's a worldview that, unbeknownst to you maybe, is being pushed upon you. And it's not the Christian worldview. It's either helping in your sanctification and helping in your growth and godliness, or it's going to be dragging you down. And so Jesus bids us to beware of the corrupting influence of false teachers and false ideologies that would draw you away from him. Beware of the leaven of hypocrisy because it only takes just a little bit. And why is that? Why is Jesus giving the disciples this warning? Because verse 2 and 3 tells us. Verse 2 and 3 says, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Full disclosure of your and my life will become completely displayed on Judgment's Day. Your true self will be completely revealed before an all-knowing and an all-seeing God. God's limitless capacity and His divine omniscience is a 100% guarantee that all hypocrisy is going to be disclosed. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that one day, all of our secret sins are going to be revealed. All of our secret thoughts, all of our sins that we may have seemed to have successfully covered up in this life will be open and be laid bare to God. 
Every proud conceit, every petty theft, every lustful thought, every sinful fantasy, every grumbling, every whisper of gossip, every word or thought spoken in anger, every doubt of God will be exposed before Him. And that's because God sees and He knows everything about us. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Paul writes to the Romans in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, and tells us that there is a day when, according to his gospel, that God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, when he writes, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge in the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have much to do. Psalm 139.12 says, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And finally, 1 Samuel 16.7 says, For God does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God sees beyond your mask. God doesn't look at your exterior appearances and your performance before your Christian friends and your acts of propriety that you seem to turn on and off. God sees who you truly are. And if you don't listen and hear up one thing from this entire sermon, I need you to listen now. I need you to listen. Who are you before God when it's just you and Him? Who are you? Before God, when it's just you and Him. Where is your heart in terms of your love for Jesus Christ? What are your motivations for doing the very things that you do? Is it because you see it as a a sheer duty to think that people are going to think well of you? Or is it because you delight in God? Have you been slothful in keeping watch over your heart? John Flavel, he wrote in Keeping of the Heart, he said that heart work is hard work indeed. To shuffle over religious duties with a loose and needless spirit will cost no great pains, but to set thyself up before the Lord and tie up thy loose and vain thoughts to a constant and serious attendance upon Him, this will cost you something. To attain a, a facul- or facility and a dexterity of language and prayer and to put thy meaning into apt and decent expressions is easy. But to get thy heart broken for sin while thou art confessing it, melted with free grace while blessing God for it, to be really ashamed and humbled through the apprehensions of God's infinite holiness, and to keep thy heart in this frame, not only in but after duty, will surely cost thee some groans and pains of the soul. To kill the root of corruption within, to set and keep up a holy government over thy thoughts, to have all things lie straight and orderly in the heart. This is not easy. 
But have you even ever asked God to help you in this matter? How frequently are you praying to God to have a a heart to love Him more? How often are you asking God to help you hate your sin more and to see the beauty of His holiness so that you walk more consistently with Him? When was the last time you prayed to the infinite host of the universe to give you a heart to fear Him and to love Him and to delight in Him? In Proverbs 23, 26, God says to you, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Ask Him. Cry out to Him. Be like that persistent friend in Luke eleven five eight, 8. And He says, don't leave until God gives you an answer for your petition in loving Him more. Ask Him for that heart, that it would be full of delight in Him, and that He will no, by no means deny you that request. If you being a son or daughter of the King... And you ask Him for such a thing as greater love for Him, He's not going to give you a snake, is He? If you being ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and you ask Him for greater zeal and a greater passion for His name, He's not going to give you a scorpion. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but He delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And does not that all things in this verse mean all things and include a greater and greater capacity to love Jesus Christ? Why would you not want that? Why would you even hesitate to ask for such a thing as greater and greater love for Jesus Christ? That's quite possible. You may may be out there hearing this and you're really unmoved. And I say, you might just very well be a performer. You might just be very well fooling everybody in this room. But God is not mocked. And He sees your inward person, and someday all will come to light. There is nothing covered that will be revealed. That's what our text tells us. But you need to know, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, it says that if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. But to the rest of you who have maybe been pricked in your conscience or your heart may have been melted and you want to have just this sweeter communion with God and you want to love Jesus more and more, there's hope for you. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, and this comes after what we just read about the Word of God being living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, right? All things are laid bare before Him with whom we have to do, right? Because the Word of God judges us and our thoughts and the intentions of our heart, and because God sees everything we do, it says, Therefore, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16 then says, therefore. And so we see this escalation, right? Because the word of God judges us and divides and sees the motives of our hearts. And because God sees everything, right? And Jesus sympathizes with us because we are, He was tempted in all things but without sin. It says, 
Then, in conclusion, right? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near to God for the help we need. We can approach God for the grace and the mercy we need because we have Jesus Christ as our great high priest who has passed through the veil of the Holy of Holies. We have an advocate, and his name is Jesus Christ. We have someone who lives forever, always making intercession for us. We have someone whom we can cast all of our burdens upon because he cares for us. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so as you examine your heart this morning, as you frequently should, let us consider the measure of love that we have for Jesus and recognize it that it is grossly inadequate to the love that He has demonstrated for us by dying on the cross. But then let us boldly approach the throne of grace on a daily basis and ask God to help us to beware of any leaven of hypocrisy in our hearts. And let us pray that God would help us to abound more and more and more each day in the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we can hardly fathom the depth of the love that you have for us that you would send your own beloved, perfect, sinless Son to die for us. That fact alone should cause us to love you more and more. But our hearts are cold. They grow dim. They grow attracted by the things of this world, Lord. So help us. Help us to love you more. Make us white hot for the gospel. Let us have a zeal for Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to love your Son as you loved Him. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.